Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, read along with me if you would, please. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God, keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Now, note today that I not, let me try that again. Note today that I do not speak with your children, whom have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land. What he did to the armies of the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, how the Lord has destroyed them to this day and what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliav, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen every act of the Lord which he did. Therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong and that you may go in and possess the land in which you cross over to possess. And that you may prolong your days in the land in which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to them and to their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land in which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land in which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land in which the Lord your God cares the eyes of the Lord, your God, are always on it from the beginning of the year until the end of the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord, your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season and the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass on your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. But take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them, lest the anger or the Lord's anger be aroused against you. And he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place in which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness of Lebanon to the river, the river Euphrates, even to the wilderness, or the, I'm sorry, to the western sea, it shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put dread of you and the fear of you upon the land where you tread just as he has said to you. Now behold then, I set before you today a blessing and a curse, the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. 
And a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way in which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Now it shall be, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land in which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ibal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan towards the setting sun? And in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moreh, for you will cross over the Jordan and go in and to possess the land in which the Lord your God is giving you, and you will possess it and dwell in it. You shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. You pray with me, please. Oh God, you're so good. Thank you so much for the blessing of this time, for every moment, Lord, that you lay before us now. And I pray you would redeem every second. Lord, Waste no time, but dive straight into our hearts now. May your word impact us like it's never before. May we be open and available for the inculcating of your word so that our lives could be changed as you desire. God, that we would intimize with you, that we would be so profoundly affected, God, that we would say, wow. May we have so much fun in your word. May it burst open and come alive. Color in the black and white, Lord, so that we see so clearly what you intend to show us in this chapter. So Lord, teach, instruct, correct, rebuke, strengthen what is weak, encourage what is discouraged. Lord, bring life to what is becoming dead. Save, Lord. Revive. Transform. Do your work. Lord, may our hearts be open that in every way, Lord, you would now profoundly, personally minister to us as people, speaking fluent us individually, and powerfully minister to us as a family. Thank you for the blessing, Lord, of being able to take this time now. And Lord, I pray that we would be so touched by you. So Lord, immerse me in your, your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and you would appear and come upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would use me as your tool now Lord, take my lips, attach them to your heart and take my heart and make it yours. Lord, I just commit every second of this to you and thank you. Minister now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Don't just assume it's truth because some guy with a microphone that's called a pastor says something. I've heard the wonkiest things from guys with microphones called pastors. Our pretext goes back to the last chapter. That's why it's pretext. And, and if you will, notice, by the way, in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, therefore. We have a general rule in regards to the therefore. Whether therefore you should know what the therefore is therefore. Notice there will be three of them. One in verse 1, one in verse 8, and one in verse 18. In each case, a therefore is, in the simplest sense, a practical way then to live out a principle. The last thing that had been said then, which then hinges on our first one here for the therefore. And I remind you, by the way, when Moses was writing this down, it wasn't like, no, chapter 11. That was actually 500 years after Jesus came and died on a cross for us, that people would do that. Now, we could be thankful, because it's a lot easier for me to say, turn, to me, turn with me into Deuteronomy 11. For some, that's hard enough. But can you imagine if I just, we all had scrolls, and I said, turn with me to that portion where Moses says, and you're like, I think he said that before. And you'd be flipping and spinning around forever. 
So in chapter 11, we could be thankful for it, but it hinges. It's not a new idea. It so therefore pulls us off of the last chapter. And in the last chapter, the last thing he said, by the way, look at verses 12. Let's, might, as well, might as well start at verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. And to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name because he's your praise. He's your God. And he's done these great and awesome things in which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons and now the Lord your God has made you like the stars of heaven in multitude. You came this, you entered in a tiny little thing and look already, you are a force to be reckoned with. It's over with verse 1 in the simplest sense because he's done more than just allow you to survive but rather he has thrived you. Notice it will be love and keep always. That's verses 1 to 7. Then verses 8 to 17. Because he has shown himself both intimate and invincible, furious and fatherly, therefore keep every command. And verses 18 through 32. Therefore, because this new land will demand for you to live in faith, in essence, a lifestyle of walking on water, therefore cherish in your heart the word of God everywhere. So in the simplest sense, the command will be, in three times at least, we'll see here, to love him. We are to love and keep his commandments if you will, every time, that's those first seven verses, and then every command, that's verses 8 through 17, and then everywhere, verses 18 to 32. Well, here's the problem, is that we have this natural tendency, and you can disagree with me if you like, but it seems to me that we have this terrible habit, this almost addiction, this crippling addiction, to sort of attach our fractured past to our dismal now dismal present. You know, we look back at our failures. We look back at, at those moments where, to be honest, they really should be covered in a river of the blood of Christ. I mean, but what happens then is we look at the future with dread because we look and we go, well, I've done this and I've done this and I'll probably do it again. And we live in this place where we're sort of impotent and fractured as a result of it. Now, what we really should be doing, interestingly enough, is actually taking the freeing necessity of actually connecting God's faithful past to my now hopeful past you know, present, which then actually give me not a future to dread, but rather a future to discover. If I look back, I can look at it one of two things. I can look at it through the lens of myself, which will always be failure, or I can look at it through the lens of the blood of Christ, which will always show him faithful. So what either would be faithfulness or failure? It all depends on whose eyes I want to look through. And what Moses has been challenging them, we are standing at the riverbank, promised land is on the other side of it. We were here 40 years ago, 38 years ago, and we said no because the people that were there were too big and we knew there were battles to be fought and we were just too small because we were too busy staring at ourselves. And when we looked at ourselves, we said, there's no way I'll be able to do this. Because we felt that way, instead of looking at God and saying, you know, we could do anything in Him as long as He does it. Instead, what we were at is we were at this place where all we could see is ourselves and because of that, we're like, well, you know, we'll never, we'll never be able to go in. And now here we are, another generation, 38 years later, looking at this and saying, you know what? Things have got to be different than last time because it didn't turn out so well then. So what do you want to attach? God's faithful past? Or do you want to attach the failures in your past? And that is why this whole chapter is so important. Because the whole fundament of it is, God says, that's why I speak to you specifically. Because you guys aren't people who don't have a past. I look at your past, and what I see in the past is both the gory and the glorious. I see those mistakes, but I see how they've been covered in the grace and mercy of God. And I want you to look back with me and look at God's track record, not yours. Because as you're looking at this battle in front of you, as you look at this thing that looks invincible and impervious and so set in stone, and you're like, there's no way I could get into this. If you focus on that or yourself, you're going to go down. 
And yet God's already promised us this. And, you know, maybe you look and you think, well, probably Pastor Tony has it. Maybe a couple other saints in the fellowship probably have it. But, but for me, no, I'll, I'll never really have what Christ promised. Well, what kind of faith is that? Well, you know, I know he said abundant life, but, but that's for some. That's not what I read in Scripture. And if I got my doctrine strictly from Scripture, what I'd find is that, well, really, God's not that at all. He's sincere and consistent throughout anyone who would come to him. He'd never cast away. And whoever was weary and overladen, God would give them rest. He promised us that. He said the whoever and whoever's whoever. I do like that. So really what we see in this chapter, interesting enough, are going to be two strong sides that seem irreconcilable. If you will, the good and the severe. It'll be the just and the justifier. And by the way, that's exactly what Romans says. And Romans, it tells us, by the way, that we're to consider the goodness and the severity of God. Romans 11:22. We're to look and see God as the just and justifier. Romans 3:26. And I look at all of this and I realize what God's doing. He's setting aside two sides. And this is the fundament of the whole chapter. And please don't miss this. I mean, on one side, God is mighty, big, invincible, almighty, from everlasting to everlasting. Who can stand against them? The most amazing part is who can stand with him. On the other side of it, he's meek and caring and loving and gentle. Sensitive. And unfortunately, we have this tendency, instead of doing it in faith, trying to do it intellectually. And what will happen is, it is an irreconcilable thing. It's irreconcilable intellectually because they're, in essence, diametrically opposed. On one side, he dwells in inapproachable light. Do you know what that means? You ever have light so big that just the very existence of it causes you to recoil? You ever ride a bike and have something drive by that's so loud every muscle on your body tightens and your handlebars change? We get the idea that God is perfectly holy. He's so perfectly holy that nothing could stand beside him at position. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that God is completely approachable. That he's willing to come down to our level. To have a prostitute come down to his feet. A woman caught in adultery. To have a leper to reach out and touch him and say, I'm willing, be clean. A person that doesn't have a problem touching someone dead because they say, well, touching a dead person makes them unclean. The problem is once he touches them, they're not dead anymore. So try to put that case against him. And I realize, how do I reconcile these two things? Well, God never told me to. What God told me to do was have a faith big enough to allow both of them to exist. And that's where the problem is. So some will lean to one side and some will lean to the other. On one side, some will lean to this, God is so holy, what we need to do are like esoteric things. And if we could just sit in a room and fill it full of incense and put like cool smoke lights and mirrors and get behind a little patched thing and maybe pray to a saint because God's too holy or pray to his mom because God's so holy and Jesus is so holy, we really can't talk to him. And what happens is, well, then he's in a relationship with you after all of that. But hey, he's holy. And on the other side of it, God is so cool. He's like my homeboy. You know, we hang out and we tell jokes and we watch these movies together. And, you know, I just, you know, and it's like the whole thing where God like ceases to be holy. And then you get offended when Jesus actually does something with authority in your life. You're like, hey, 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 none of the rest of my friends do that. And she's like, none of the rest of your friends are God. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah I kind of forgot about that. And so you on one side, you have like the God of the, the untouchable God. And on the other side, you have like the unholy God. But really, to be honest, somewhere in between is this most amazing place where our brains really should explode like volcanoes out of our ears. This place where I can actually look and go, how do these two things reconcile? 
And the only word to answer that is God. And you're like, well, that's a convenient answer. And I'm like, yeah, God made it convenient because it's true. And I look at it and I think, you know what? You're perfectly holy and you are perfectly strong. And you're also perfectly approachable. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. And in this chapter, what we're going to see is we're going to see the sort of strong and sensitive side of God. And on both of those things, you really could say you could be on his good side or his bad side. Now, one of those isn't the good side and one of them isn't the bad side. To be honest, both are good or both are bad. It all depends on how you want to approach him. On one side, you can live against him in regards to the law that he sets. By the way, that's exactly what Jesus would say. Remember when people say, and when Jesus speaks to us in, in Matthew, and they'll say, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? Now, unless you're like completely delusional, chances are these things probably happened. Like, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all of these crazy miracles in your name? I mean, these are people who saw the supernatural issue through them, and they're going to approach God, and this is going to, God, and this is going to be their docket of reason to approach him. I say, didn't we do all of these things? Check it out. I mean, we had a giant church, and we like laid hands on people, and they shook, and they waved, and they and all that. And then like, and the guy grew an arm, you know, and, and another person grew a foot, and this person lost their cancer, and this person did this. Isn't that it? And Jesus' answer is really interesting. He says, get away from me. I never knew you, but he calls them you who practice lawlessness. You know what lawlessness is? God set up a standard, and you were busy making up your own rules. Interesting. See, in the end of it all, it isn't about what you did for God because God didn't create you to do stuff for Him. He created you to do stuff with Him. And there's the difference. And so on one side of it, there is the, the good side of God where you're actually under submission to God and you're actually seeking. And what's the one command He keeps telling us here? To love Him. It's like, what I really want your love. You want to try to just do all of these things but not love me? It's not going to have a great purpose behind it. And you'll do as little of it as possible to pass the test. So listen, as a father, I didn't have children and thought, you know, we should have these because, man, there's so much work to do around the house. If I can get a couple of these kids out, we can get a lot more work done. We're probably all aware of the fact that children don't usually make less work. And the Lord continues reminds you of that, of course, in regards to my walk with him. But out of love, I wanted a place to dump it. That's never changed. But I need to be both. On the good side of it, I want to be able to dump this endless love and care upon them to provide for them in such a way that they're safe and they're comfortable and they're at rest. But strength is important too. Because God help, if that's a dangerous way to say that, anyone who wants to go and get at my kids, my kids would want me strong. That strength is a comfort to them. Because that strength says, you know, I, I kind of have this feeling that if we were in a place and we were in a dangerous situation, I still would be safe because my dad was gonna, would jump in the middle of it. That's a good strong. You follow me? On the other side of it, a bad strong would be the person that actually comes after my kids. They're not going to want me to be strong, but they're going to get it, and I'll die before they get to my kids. More than likely, I'll take them with. Or at least my goal would be, of course, to paralyze them so they could still hear the gospel. Anyways, but, yeah, it's not like I've thought this through too much in prayer. All right. Here's, here's the point. Is that there is a tender and a terrible side to God that are both wonderful if you're looking for them. 
And in this chapter, that's what he lays out. Take a look at it with me. And again, the whole point of it is, is that the therefore keep always at all times at every place. What I say, because I know what I'm talking about and I'm strong enough to make it come to pass. So look at it with me as we develop it. It says in verses 1 then 1 through 7. And by the way, can I just say this to build into this? Romans, when he talks about, when Paul talks about submitting to authorities, he does it, and I think this is a really fascinating point that he makes in Romans 13:5 when he says, therefore we need to be subject not for wrath's sake alone, but for conscience sake. And I get the idea that one of those two things will drive you. If you're doing wrong, wrath will be the thing more than anything that may stop you. But if you're doing right, conscience will be enough. And I've learned this. God never uses excessive force. Romans 13, verse 5. Sure, he will never steer with a sledgehammer if he can move you with a feather. He never uses excessive force. So look at these first seven verses with me. Therefore, since you came in just 70 people and look at you now almost innumerable, Love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Now, no, again, I don't speak today to your children who have not seen the chastening, the greatness, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm that God has shown us here. And I think this is interesting. Look at these four things. The first of them, by the way, is the idea that God doesn't have a problem stepping into something physically. The, the term, by the way, is the term Musar. Could you say Musar? Like Musar. Musar. Musar means to chastise, or if you will, literally to change something with blows, to step in, fist first. The second term, greatness, is the term Godel. Would you say Godel? Like, for instance, some of you are familiar with the high priest, the priest, or to this day, the term Godel is a term, or Godal, is a term that is often used in Israel in regards to something bigger. The priest is a Kohen. The high priest is a Kohen Gadal. It literally means the big priest. And when you want something big, you ask for Gadal. In other words, might I just use the word massive? The third word, the word for mighty, like mighty hand, is the word Chazak. Could you say Chazak? Chazak is the word which means strong. Able to push and pick up and throw. And then the fourth word, the word for outstretch, is the word nata. Would you say nata? Nata literally means to stretch out, to reach. Now, reaching is a good thing and reaching is a bad thing. It all depends on what you're doing. Case in point. Several years ago, we had the privilege, uh, a band that we were in, of going and touring Russia. We had done uh, Moscow and we had worked our way up uh, through Smolensk and then ultimately on our way up towards St. Petersburg. And in, in these, in Tavera, and some of the concerts that we had done were becoming sort of a, it was a really, really cool thing. We were watching lots and lots of people give their life to Jesus Christ. Lots of people responding was a lot of fun. But as we started doing this, needless to say, oppression, or I should say opposition, starts to rise. And some of the opposition that started to rise, by the way, were the two groups that we saw that was sort of most, well, most profile. Well, one was the Orthodox Church, but the other was the skinheads. They kind of had a strata in the area. I, I kind of didn't really see them much until this concert. But while we were doing this concert, right in the middle of this concert, we were preaching Jesus, and, and a couple of these guys, it was, it, it was like a three or four night stint, and it was our last night of this particular place. And 
uh, all of a sudden, one of these guys uh, jumps up on stage with his buddy and they hold a wax paper American flag. And his buddy grabs a, a lighter and puts it underneath the wax paper. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't take a brilliant person to think if you're going to really set a paper on fire, wax paper is the least likely. You can make a candle out of it better, right? Because it's covered in wax. It's sort of like baker's paper. But he's just the same, ah, America is like this. And all of a sudden, this giant hand, the size, of, the size of my head, comes out of nowhere and grabs this guy and he's like, Hoop! and he just disappears. And all he sees is going, ah, and it looked like it got sucked into like a sinkhole. And then another giant hand, the size of my face, grabbed the other guy by the throat and whoop, he disappeared. And I'm like, what just happened? Yeah, as a matter of fact, how, this is how the miracle looks in its practical sense. The night before, when we did an altar call, a bunch of people gave their life to Jesus Christ. Actually, several hundred, which was part of the fun. One of the people who responded was the chief of police. And he, liking the band, decided he was going to get a front row seat the next day. Except it was standing room only. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no interest in spending any night in a uh, Russian prison you especially don't want to spend the night in Russian prison when the chief of police grabbed you by the throat and pulled you off stage. Now, that was an outstretched arm. For the troublemakers, it was not so good. For us, it was a great thing in the sense that we were safe. We knew that hand was there for a reason. And when God says, look it, you guys are not ignorant of these things. How many times have you just like, took a review of your life well, we start to review the faithfulness of God. Not those ones that are like, this was a heartbreak, and this is when she said, I just want to be friends, or it's not you, it's me. Well, it's like we can almost date and time those moments, but those moments where God stepped in and it was a miracle where He parted the Red Sea, how do we forget those? He's like, do you remember those moments where God did that, where you were like, someone was staring you in the face, and like, you are so down, and the hand just went, and they went, and they were just gone as fast as they, as they taunted you. Because you guys are not ignorant of these things. I'm not calling people who don't know God's faithfulness to step in and, and, and to obey God. God never tells the unbeliever they need to submit to His rules. What God tells the unbeliever is they need to accept the gift of His Son. Because I don't have the ability to obey God without His Son. How about you? It's just That's a general test to see whether or not you're delusional. Now, follow me in this. So here are the four things. Listen, God's showing Himself to be somebody who doesn't have a problem... Knocking heads. God who shows that He doesn't have a problem, you know, being massive. God is showing that He doesn't have a problem being strong. And a God who shows that He doesn't have a problem stepping in or reaching into a situation that there's a need. This is my God. And He looks at these people and He goes, Don't you realize your history already? You were birthed. Your cradle was this. As well as your crucible. And I look at this and I see him. He goes, look at what he shows us from this point on. The rest of it to verse 7 shows us the bad side of that. You want to get on the wrong side of that? Listen to this. Verse 3, the signs and the acts in which he did in the midst of Egypt, Pharaoh king of Egypt, to all his land and to the army of Egypt, to their horses and chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day and what he did in the wilderness. Now stop. Before we get to the second part of that, here's the first part. Notice he laid out four things. He told us, by the way, it was the Egyptians, that it was Pharaoh, that it was Egypt as a land, and the army. 
And what's interesting is I look and I go, hmm, four. Where did I see the four? Oh, yeah. God's ability to chastise. Interestingly enough, you know what he chastised according to these, if we put them in the same order? The gods of Egypt. God didn't have a problem knocking heads with the false gods of Egypt. God is never intimidated by somebody else's God because they're not real. And you're aware of the fact it's like watching a movie and you could get a little freaked out a little bit because Hollywood did their job. And then you realize, you know what? This isn't real. Why am I afraid of this guy with the mask on or the crazy thing or the little doll thing that comes alive with a chainsaw or whatever it is? Those things are real. But there's a part of it that goes, but, but what if they are? Here's the good news. God doesn't have a problem proving he's the real God. And so it's like you've got the gods of Egypt. God knocked heads. And guess who came up victorious? The real one. Pharaoh, God doesn't have a problem being massive. Pharaoh thought he was large and in charge. Not compared to Pharaoh. Not compared to God. Pharaoh thought he was large and in charge. God says, you want to see large and in charge? You're going down. Now, Pharaohs, traditionally, by the way, were responsible for this thing called the Ka. The Ka was, in essence, the order of the universe. So understand, when chaos broke in Egypt, people were looking at Pharaoh because he was supposed to keep people's world in order. Could you imagine having that kind of pressure? Glad it isn't me. The third God showing himself strong. Well, that was Egypt as a land. You know how he showed his strength there? How he separated Israel and Goshen and took down everything from the, from the livestock to the grass to the light. And he showed himself strong. And then finally, how did he stretch out his hand? According to this, well, that was actually a fairly easy one to look at. That was the army and how he stretched out his hand and went, oh, water. Let's let them get in. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, it's one of the most amazing parts in all of Scripture. Imagine, I, I don't know how hell-bent you have to be to watch two million people walk through something which we read the fountains of the deep were stopped up. You know what that means? That means that we're not looking at them kind of wa- wading through water and then going, oh, look, it, it's actually dry ground now. We're looking at something that's taller than the sides of this building. So look up for a moment and imagine this is our alleyway. And imagine, if you will, the water goes all the way up there. And that's, by the way, a very, very, very kind appraisal. You'd have to actually quadruple that to get honest about it because this is the time when it actually overflows its banks. So just the same, here we are walking through this. And, you know, I don't know, at first, I mean, which one of us is like, uh, uh, right? It's kind of, okay, okay. And then once you get like, you know, a third of the way in, you tailing it to the other side, you know what I'm saying? Right? And somewhere down the line, it's like, you know, the people that didn't run in first are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm walking now because I don't want to... Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. And then it's like, but okay, here's the part you walk and you see all of that happen and you're the Egyptian army. And which one of you thinks heads or tails, you go first or I go first. Really? You just watch the seas part, mountains of water on both sides. You're going to think, yeah, let's go after them. That wasn't, that's not supernatural. That was probably a comet. No, it wasn't. It was the hand of God. And to me, that's one of the most amazing parts where they look and they're like, well, then let's go in after them. And God goes, okay. Ta-da! What a battle that was. Well, why, God, why did God allow that? Like in our lives, why does God actually allow the enemy to look so big, so tough, and get so close? Because if he didn't do that, you'd think he was still there. But what Israel got to see when getting to the other side, here we are, we're crossing, and oh, okay, get it, oh, get it. I'm over here now, okay, and I'm back here. And everything I know, it's like, okay, I'm the last guy. And then I watch the army come, and as I watch the army come, I'm like, oh, this is really bad. But the moment the water closes up, 
bam! And I see a helmet, bloop, to the top, and a shield, bloop, to the top, and a couple swords and chariots and wheels, bloop, come to the top. And I think, wow, I don't have to spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder and wondering where those Egyptians are. I just watch them. It's like a soup of death. You guys feel it? I'm like, oh, that's my army? That's how quickly that took place? God says, you remember that. Didn't you see that? Didn't you see what I did? You have that history of watching what I did in your life. How I walked you through the impossible and then closed up the en- closed it up right on the enemy right in front of me. He goes like, he's done. He is done. And you know what he has to taunt you with now? Your memories, because that's the only place where he could live. To all the present and the future, he's already done. And I look at this and notice what it says in the second portion of this, verse 5. And what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram. By the way, this takes us all the way back to number 16. Where in number 16, remember the people sort of stood up and said in the simplest sense, Who died and made you boss? To Moses. And God's like, step out of the way, I'll just get rid of them all. Moses like, please don't do that. I'm concerned about your name. God's like, that's what I was looking for. He's like, well, I'll tell you what. Let's just do this the real way. Let's both set up our little things, and then um, whichever one the ground opens up and swallows is not the right one. Now, you have to be pretty convinced you're the right one at that moment, wouldn't you? Or I would start, like, figuring out ways to fly. Because you saw what God did. This is what God does when he shows himself strong, how he shows himself massive, how he shows himself willing to step into the situation and really make sense of it? He goes, that's what happens when you're on the wrong side of this. Do you really want to not obey him now? Now, God, understand, can I say it this way? Perhaps you've heard the terms the whip and the carrot. I would much rather be driven by the carrot, although I'm, you know, it's not like the thing that would drive me more than anything is a carrot. But the idea of an animal, you could put something in front of it, and once it's so bad, it'll move forward, or the whip goes on the rear end of it, which I don't recommend, but you get the idea. And some of us really have to be whip-driven. Some of us are carrot-driven. I'm definitely a carrot guy. I mean, when I start seeing like something to step forward, what I want to look at is say, oh, well, what's the payoff here? What's the benefit? What's the dividend of this investment? Now, some of you, on the other hand, you'll only do it by duty, and you'll be like, oh, I do it because I have to do it. And you like, your rear end knows it. Some of you, you know, it's like, oh, man, that's not good. But I'm like, man, just give me a good reason to step forward. That's enough for me. God's like, I really want you to be carrot-driven people. I don't want you to be whip-driven people. I don't want you to be looking and going, look at what I've done to these people, but I'm going to show you in a second that that's not the entirety of it. There is a whip. It's a reality, but it doesn't have to be yours. And maybe if you're the kind that you feel like, man, you've just got a rear end of leather from your history, it doesn't have to be your future. So he's looking at, he swallowed them up, the households, their tents, these particular people who stood up against God's people, and of the substance, all their possessions. Your eyes have seen this. So he brought him out of Egypt, and he walked him through the wilderness. And he says, from their perspective, that wasn't so good. They stood against me, and they all lost. From my perspective, things are actually different, because I would look at myself as more of the Israel, and I realize that Egypt was my cradle, and the wilderness was my crucible. But in both cases, Egypt meant rescue for me. When God showed himself strong, that was my rescue. And I love that. And when I looked in the wilderness, that was my purifying. 
And that's the way God tends to work. And he goes, if this is what you've seen, verse 8 then, look at our second section, therefore keep every commandment, not just some. Don't just look and go, well, these agree. I'm cool with this one because this one looks like it'll be an honest payoff. It's the ones, to be honest, that we disagree with the most that bring the, big, the greatest payoff. And can I just say this? We talk about being submitted to God. Can I just humbly say, submission isn't submission until you disagree. <coughs> you could think that you're submitting to God because he's blessing you so much and you're receiving his blessings. But real submission happens when everything inside of you doesn't want to do what you know is right. But you do it anyways. And Jesus himself showed us that when he says, you know, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from before me. He's talking about the cross. He says, but nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus showed me that that's the way it looks. So listen, as we move to our second section, therefore keep every commandment which I command you today. And God says, this is what I want to give you, that you would be strong, you would go and possess the land that you come over to possess, then you may prolong your days in the land in which the Lord swore to give your fathers, to give them of their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you're going to possess is not like the land of Egypt, which you've, uh, which you've come uh, <clears throat> from which you've come where you sowed your seed and watered by foot. I'll develop that in a second as a vegetable garden. But the land in which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, and the land in which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord are always on it from the beginning of the year to its very year. And you shall be at the very end of the year. It shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you to love, notice that, the Lord your God, and serve him with all your heart and soul, that I will give you the rain, earlier and latter. What's interesting is he gives four promises here, and this is the carrot. Or the whip on that side of it, well, there was that things where God actually showed what happened when he took down Egypt. Pharaoh, the land, and his army. But notice here the four things starting in verse 8. The first is that you would be strong. And the word, by the way, is the word chazak. Does that sound familiar? Because it's the same word that God used about himself. God wants to give us his strength. Not for our will, but his and this is part of the care. It's like, do you feel weak? I'm not talking about, you know, you're physically, you haven't eaten anything all day and you haven't slept much this weekend and you feel weak. But I'm talking about where you look at the world and it seems like it's got such a momentum and you know you're called to stand against it, but you don't because you feel like you don't have the strength. Yes, you do. If you're willing to obey him, he's willing to give you the power to do so. And this is the one, the second. It's power, possession, prolonging, and provision, by the way, will be the four here. But the second one's the one that the Lord really took me to school on, I'll be honest. This possession thing, Yeresh, to occupy. And, and this is why. Because I read it and I know the words, and so I, because I know the words and its definition, it was enough for me to kind of move forward. You know, okay, possession, you possess the land. Come and possess the land. It's yours. You put a little sign on it, it says, belongs to one. Right? Property of one. But see, the Lord's like, no, 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 wait a minute a second. Tony, possession, when you, I say the word possession, what is that? What, is that? what do you think of? And I'm like, well, I think it's some guy possessed by a demon. He's like, okay, well, that's the first place you go. And he goes, what does that look like? I'm like, hmm. I've never slowed down to really take a look at it. I feel like I'm running through a museum of beautiful things, and God says, let's take a look at this one. I'm like, when a person is possessed, the host ceases to look and behave like the host 
but now it takes on the characteristics of the possessor. God goes, good. I'm calling you to possess the land. And then it hit me. The church really doesn't possess the land. We should, but we don't. Because if we did, the host would cease to look like the host, but would take on the characteristics of the possessor. Then I realized, let's go beyond that. Let's go more intimate. Let's go deeper. What about me? Do I take on the characteristics of my possessor? It would be fun to walk around Camden and we could all wear the shirt, I'm possessed. Because if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you're possessed. Did you know that? It tells us in Ephesians 1, having believed, you were marked, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, a guarantee of your inheritance. Have you accepted God's gift? God is so desirous of being intimate with you. The moment you say yes to him, he comes and moves inside of you. Can you get any closer than that? I'm like, God, I need to be more possessed by you. That all they would see is you. That they wouldn't go, oh, that Tony, but they'd say, oh, that Jesus that he serves. Because how am I to see the land possessed if I myself am not possessed like I should be? So full of myself instead of him. God just doesn't want that. Because what I want to do is I want you to possess the land. I want the land to, people to look and go, that's, that looks like the Lord. That's what that looks like. That's the intent. And I realize, oh God, please do that in my life. And that's been my prayer ever since. And then as I look at that, God says, look, this is, this is what happens if you are willing to follow me. If you're really willing to love me like I'm asking, well, then you will be strong and you'll go in and possess the land and you'll prolong your days. Your days will be long. You'll actually be able to see this and go, you know what, God's like, you don't have to ever leave this place. This place of great intimacy and overflow with the Lord. And it's not like other things where you kind of get there and it's like I had a really good season with the Lord and now here I am being lame. Truth be told, love doesn't have to wane. Love doesn't have to grow cold. Love should get better. My walk with Christ has been so beautiful as I walk with Him and realize that every day I learn a little bit more about Him. And it's like I'm, I'm so sick of watching people get old and get comfortable and somehow look and go, There's, just give me examples, please, of people who the more old they get, the more in love with Jesus they get. Or do we get sucked into the current of let's just get comfortable and let's settle down and and I want to be more a little boy in Christ at 80 than I was at 8. But then I didn't even know Jesus till I was 19. I want to be like Caleb at 85. He's like, you know, I saw that land 40 years ago and I want it now. Like, give me that. Give me those kind of guys. I mean, give me someone to look up to. And I realize there's a whole generation without a father that needs fathers like that. That aren't just going, you know, let me tell you the great stories. We do it like the opposite, right? We do all of our great stuff like our first couple of years in Christ, and then we tell everyone how great it was in the glory days. Why doesn't he just kill us in year three? Does he really think we want to sort of sit around in our leather chairs and sit around and smoke our spiritual pipes and talk about the good old days? Do you really think that's what God has for this country? I don't. And I plan on staying to watch what God's doing. I plan on watching God and I plan on growing old with you. I don't plan on growing old gracefully. 
I don't be. I don't like romantically envision me to be like one of those old crotchety old guys that are like, you know, I can't sit on that because it might give me hemorrhoids. And I've gotten that at that. I, I plan on being the guy that's like, you know what? If I can do it, why can't you? So we go on some kind of men's retreat, although we call it an advance because men don't retreat. And we're going to walk to some place at the end of it all, and I've got all these big and buff guys that are with me, and I'm the first one up there, and I'm with Juan, and we're looking like, what's wrong with you guys? You're the young one. And I'm like, I want to be like that in every area of my life, not the what's wrong with you part. And I want, ladies, I want you to be like that. Where, we grow, where you grow so in love with the Lord that people look and go, man, that woman is beautiful. And the more older she gets, the more beautiful she gets because I see more of what it looks like to be absorbed in the love of Christ. I mean, you know, no gal in her physical features could ever possibly compare to the beauty of somebody absorbed in worship in God. Can you, do you agree with me? And we want to go and go, oh, they're, they kind of look cute out there on the street. Nothing in comparison. Because inside I'm getting better looking. I just want to warn you now, and if you could see the inside, ten years from now, man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be kicking it. Because he's making me new every morning and I'm becoming more like him. Just don't look at the outside that much because that's, that's, that's another story. He's like, look, I want to prolong your days. And I don't, I don't want you to ever grow old and weird. When it talked about Moses, when that guy died, it must have been kind of, I don't want to say funny, because that's kind of a weird thing to put with death. But it's like it says that he like never lost his vitality. You know what that means? It wasn't like he like laid on his death, but anyone, oh, Joshua. He was like, Joshua, stay with it. Do it. Okay, I've got to die now. Ah! And then he dies. I mean, it's like, you know, there was like no, like, there was like no long death scene. It's like, time to go. I want to be like that. And it isn't like jump in front of a bus thing, but it's like I want to be like one of the, And I want us to all to be like that. I don't want us to ever look back and go, oh, remember when I was on fire for the Lord? What are you made of, like physical kindling? This is an everlasting fire. It's an all-consuming fire. I just want to keep handing it to him and watching what he does, man. But I want it to be like, oh, this church used to be cold until we came in and now it's just hot. He's like, I want you to prolong your days. And look, at if you're willing to obey me, I'm going to take care of you. Stop worrying about that. I've got this covered. This was a surprise to you, but no part of it did I ever go, oh, sorry, what in the world? He never sleeps, he never slumbers. It isn't like God like fell into a coma for a moment or something, you know? He ate a little bit too much Jaffa cakes or something, and he's like in a sugar coma. He's like, ah, sorry, what, what were we talking about? God? This is not my God. It's me, but it isn't him. And this is the beauty of this. Because he's like, look at the land I'm going to take you into is not like the land you knew. I want to warn you, the place in front of you is not going to look like the place you knew before. And let me tell you why. The place you knew before, you could see what provision looked like. For you, it was the Nile. And because it was the Nile, you know how to water. I mean, you didn't see rain. What you saw was the Nile. And what you saw with the Niles, that was the giver of life. You actually went and you just dug a burrow like this, a little channel where the water came from the river, and then when you wanted to close it up, you just took your foot and you went like that and closed it up. Thus, you watered by the foot. It wasn't like you had like a really bad sweat problem on your foot and went, no, I'm just going to water my plants. I mean, this was, you were letting a little bit of a, you know, you were putting a channel and you were closing up because you always saw that provision before. But that's not going to be the way it is. I am inviting you to a lifestyle of walking on water. And that's what he's telling them. Because this water is going to have to come from somewhere else. I'm going to have to provide it. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about the miracle of rain, but let me just kind of put things together. Follow me on this for a moment. I'm just going to give you a little bit of science, just a little bit. Now, by the way, there were so many areas like science and history. I was just never that interested until I found Christ, and then everything changed. Listen, Job 5.10 tells us he gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. But listen to this. Let's say that, and I'm just going to use Bjorn because it's actually appropriate. Let's say that Bjorn owns one square mile. This is uh, some information a couple of people have given me that they said they've heard, and I've looked and I've checked it up. Let's say he owns one square mile of farmland. He's not able to go and irrigate. He's completely reliant on rain. How much rain does that particular ground need? For the average crop, maybe let's say four or five inches within a course of a month. But let's just shoot really low. Let's say one inch a week. Just to make sure the waters, the ground is covered. So I'm going to start doing something. If I needed one inch, one inch of water to cover one square mile, that would take, for what it's worth, 27,878,400 cubic feet of water. Or, if you will, it would take over 780 million liters to be, trans, to be transposed. So God has to go and find that kind of water somewhere. He has to go and deliver. This is just for one square mile. And for one square mile, he has to deliver 780 million liters of water just for this one mile. But there's got to be more than that. Well, we do have a really big body of water near Israel. What is that water? What body is that? The Mediterranean Sea. But there's a problem with the Mediterranean Sea. It's salty. And if you drop, well, in this case, 780 million gallons, or I'm sorry, 780 million liters of water on the ground, it's going to kill all the crops. That's too much salt. So God has to invent a way to remove the salt. He also has to invent a way to actually transport that. So this is what God comes up with. First of all, what God decides he's going to do is he's going to take the water and have it cease to have the properties of water. It needs to get really, really small. And it has to get so small you can't see it so that it can rise, so that it can mysteriously rise from the pool that it's at so that no one can see it. I mean, you've ever gone, oh, look at all that evaporation. I can see it all around me. Well, the idea of it is it's making its way up. And as it makes its way up, he removes the salt before it gets up there. But when does it stop? Well, God floats in the sky, a mile up in the sky. He floats these little specks of dust that are one hundredth to one thousandth of a millimeter. So you're not going to see those either. But he floats them up there about a mile so that the water has a place to go. So this now relatively invisible water rises, having left the salt behind, rises up, gets into this area, and then finds these dust particles so it can sort of hang around those dust particles. And then once it hangs around those dust particles, they would never actually rejoin. They would just bounce off of each other. So God has to create an electrical field. And it's an electrical field that actually causes these little, tiny little invisible droplets to come together to become water again. Interestingly enough, listen to this. Psalm 135, verse 7. This is a thousand years before Jesus came and was born as a baby. 
He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, and he makes lightning for the rain. You think God knows what he's talking about? I do. And he brings the wind out of his treasures. That's also quoted, by the way, in Jeremiah 10:13 and in Jeremiah 51:16. He knows what he's talking about. He tells us in Job 28, verse 26, that he's actually made a law for the rain. In other words, God has already set up a whole thing for the rain. So here's the fun part. Now, ready? God has now lifted the water. He's removed the salt. He's lifted the water. It's funny. Oh, hey, look at There's a piece of dust. No one else can see it, but that's all right because we're small too. So let's all just all hang around together. And then an electrical field happens. And then we get moving. Hey, we're all moving. We're all pieces of water. And we're all kind of moving. And he's going to move, in some cases, a thousand miles, right? Because he's going to move all of this water from the Mediterranean and start getting ready to move it in these other places. So, so here it is. And it starts to move over the land where he wants to. So now God has already come up with the way to remove the salt, get the water up, and get it up here so that he can pick it up and move it over here. Are you with me so far? So once he gets up to this point, now here's the point, is that God has to start dropping that water. And as he creates this electrical field, the water starts to coalesce. Here's the problem, is that this particular water that we're talking about at this point is now 748, roughly 750 million kilograms. That's a lot of weight. That's a heavy water. So imagine if God just went, okay, and fall. 703 quarters of a billion kilograms. Well, it would kill everything below it. So God's like, well, let's just do something else. Let's take all of that, and we're going to put it together so that it falls in little droplets. But the problem is that God has to invent the droplets so perfectly so that it's not so big that it hurts anything it lands upon. It can land upon the petal of an orchid and not make it fall off, but not so small that it would re-evaporate on its way down. Oh, the sheer magnificent brilliance of God. And this is just the beginning of it, right? This is what God does just to say, you guys need to trust me. I already worked this thing out. Scientists are still catching up with that. God did that at the beginning. About the time of Noah is the time when we start to see that happen. And I love the fact that when God says, look it, I need you to trust me. You've got to trust me because I know what I'm doing. And you're not going to be walking in a place where you're always going to see the provision right in front of you. What you're going to see instead is that you're going to have to see me in it. And this is the way we see it. And most of us can even quote the verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not upon our own understanding. Dang it! Because that means I can't lean on my own understanding. And someone goes, well, I don't understand. It's like, well, welcome to our place. We call that faith. Faith actually is the place I can lean because I can't lean upon my own understanding. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but in, rather, in all your ways, acknowledge him. So in other words, I'm not looking for the reason. I'm looking for the reasoner. I'm looking for the God in it. Because if I can find God in this situation, then I don't really even have to understand because I know he's okay. I know everything's okay. He's got it. He's like, I'm going to put you in a place where you're not going to see provision, but that doesn't mean it isn't there. I've got it taken care of. You may not see the way out, but I've got it. You may not see the answer to this thing, but I am the answer. You need to not try to lean on your own understanding on that. And of course, in some of the circumstances as of recent, that's a very easy thing to do. How do I lean on my own understanding? And I don't understand it. What's funny is, how could you? He goes, why don't you acknowledge me instead? Why don't you look for me in it? And you're like, but I don't know if I'm finding you in it. Funny, God's like, well, I'm in the boat. Just look. 
And if you're willing to do that, then I'll give you in. That's the good side of this. Do you want the carrot or do you want the whip? I'm still strong. I'm still massive. I don't have a problem knocking heads and I don't have a problem getting messy in your life. That's good news if you're mine. So what part of that should you fear? And I look and I see the same thing again. All of a sudden God starts saying, well, there's that power and, and possession and prolonging and provision. That's all what happens when, I, when God shows himself for who he is. And again, I remind you, he's saying, well, can I remind you, this is what you already know. This should be the stuff that's review. So to bring this near to close now, look at these verses, what happens on the other side of it, verse 16 and 17. Now be careful. Take heed to yourself means y'all be better be careful. Lest your heart be deceived. You do realize you have a deceivable heart, right? Do you know that Jeremiah says that your heart's actually more deceptive than Satan? Have a nice day. This is why I have a problem with the Disney, you've got to follow your heart, you know, kind of thing. No, no, actually, you need to follow your Lord. Because your heart can be deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then God's anger will be aroused. He'll shut up the heavens so that there's no rain. The land will yield no produce. And then you'll perish quickly from the good land in which the Lord has given you. Can I just say, here's the three steps of a, of a downfall. The first is dryness. The second is desperation. And then the third is destruction. He goes, you want to actually start leaning on something else for that rain? But don't expect it from me until you come back to me. Are you dry today? Are you feeling like your life's one where you're like, you know, I've been trying so hard and I'm so dry. Or worse yet, you're at that place where you're desperate. You're working so hard and getting nothing for it. And you're like, no matter what it is, and you get stuff and it doesn't satisfy and you get friends and you, don't, you still feel lonely. You've found romance, but you're lonelier. And you've gotten stuff, but you feel needy. And, you're, and you feel like you have the ability to make choices and freedom, but you feel like you're, like you're still a slave and you don't get it. I do. I get it. Because he came to preach liberty to the captive. And that includes you and me. So he was like, if you're willing to follow me and love me like I want, I mean, I love you already. That's not in question then you'll never have to be dry. And I can hear the words of Jesus that he says, come to me, all of you who are thirsty. And if you believe in me, out of you will torrent living water. You can't be any less dry than being a fountain, at least one that's working. You can't be any less desperate than having abundant life. So therefore, would you do this, please? Make it your lifestyle. Therefore, lay up these words of mine in your heart, or your soul. Bind them as a sign in your hands. They'd be like the front of your eyes. And notice, by the way, there's heart, soul, and hands and eyes. That's the intimate, personal. That's where he wants it first. I want you to hear my voice, and I want it to be here. And I want it to be more than just at church. I want it to be here. I want you to wake up in the middle of the night and listen for me. I want you to get up in the morning and see the day as a present to be unwrapped that I just gave you on your bed, God speaking. And I want you to realize that every person I give in your life, I want to do something amazing with. I want it to be here first. Then, I want it to be in your legacy, in your lifestyle of your intimate circle, with your children. As you sit, as you walk, as you lie, as you rise, those are, of course, them to lifestyle. It isn't just, all right, kids, here's the hour where we learn about God. 
And my kids get the, you know, my kids get the holy eye roll, right? Where they're like, oh, here goes dad again. This reminds me of something of Jesus. Oh, here we go. And then I want you to write it on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, that's more than just my sort of small circle. Now, that's my public identity. When people walk by on the street, they're like, oh, those guys, they just love the Lord. I don't even know what that means yet, but I can tell you that much. It's the people at the, sh- the stores that we shop at or the restaurants that we go to. We try to go to the same place for breakfast every Sunday morning. and We just want to shine Jesus, and we're clear about what that means. And if that's the case, here's the carrot. I'll lengthen the days of your children as well. They'll be multiplied. I'll drive out, destroy, and put dread on those that stand against you. Not because you're awesome, but because God is awesome and you're resting in his arms. So notice then, verse 26, to close this out. I'm setting this as a choice. Whether you like it or not, and you're going to say God is sovereign, I'll fully agree with you, God is sovereign. But I'll also tell you, man is responsible for the choices he makes. You see, well, how do you reconcile those two? And I'll go back to how we started this. My God's big enough to fit both in. He holds me responsible for the choices I make, but he's still sovereign and in control. And he tells you, here, look at, I'm going to set this thing up and you have a choice. And here's the choice for you today. Where do you want to live? Now he says, listen, there's going to be a place on the other side. When you do cross, there's not an if, but a when. When you do cross to the other side, there's going to be a couple mountains. It's going to be beyond the plain of Gilgal. Gilgal will be the place where they consecrate themselves unto the Lord. It'll be by the, by the um, tabernacle trees of, of Mamre, which is important because that's where Abraham encountered God, by the way. And he says, there's going to be two mountains, Gerizim and Nebal. And I'm going to have half of you stand on one and half of you stand on the other. One, one side will say, here are the curses of disobedience and here are the blessings of obedience. And then you look in between and say, see that valley? That's where you're walking. Now you can choose your hill. It's interesting because this will actually take place. He'll bring this out in Deuteronomy 27, by the way, and he'll enlist what tribes? Verses 12 and 13. He says, those who stand on Mount Gerizim, who will cross over the Jordan, will be Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin. And those who stand on Mount Ebal to curse will be Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And he says, you know, the whole point of it is, is that I want you to realize this is just a cool metaphor for you to look and say, you've got one of these hills to choose. By the time we get to Joshua 8, we'll actually see it come to pass. And he goes, now listen. In the place where Abraham met God, where God, where Abraham said, would you destroy a town if there were ten righteous? To this day, they call it a minion, not like a little yellow guy, but that's what the, that's the basis for a synagogue in any place is you have ten Jewish men because of that statement. Because God was going to go down and, and deal with Sodom and Gomorrah. Interesting. Look at that again. That massive, strong, not a problem knocking heads, God. The God who doesn't have a problem stepping into the situation. But he pulled Lot out first before he ever did it. And when God knocked heads and showed himself massive and strong and intervened with the world, with Noah, he pulled him away first before he ever poured forth his wrath. He'd really like to do that today. As we go to prayer, I just want to ask something of you. Not in idealism, but in reality. Where are you at? I mean, do you want to go and walk in this land with me? I mean, this place where you realize God has this crazy blessing, but it's going to demand faith. You're going to have to keep your eye on him because you're not going to see it otherwise. 
God doesn't want to show it to us all at once or we wouldn't turn to him. But he is strong. Are you thankful or fearful? He's massive. Are you thankful? Excuse me, are you thankful or are you fearful? He doesn't have a problem knocking heads. Are you thankful or are you fearful? He doesn't have a problem getting involved in your life. Are you thankful or are you fearful? If you love him, you'll be thankful. If you're running from him, can I just say today, get to the other hill. Make your choice today. This is church in the valley for the moment. And we knew what a valley looked like because we walked through one that where water was on both sides. And now we look and we think, well, which hill do I want? Listen, beloved, I'm not, right, I'm not speaking to those of you, first of all, who have not said they've accepted Jesus. I'm, I'm saying to those of you who have, it's time to get up and follow him. Not just sit and wait for him to bring us stuff. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'd love the privilege of, of being able to invite you to accept that gift today. Dine on the cross for your and my guilt and sin, my shame, your shame, so they could be properly punished because he's the just defier. And he properly punishes it because he's just. And then rose from the dead to give me a new life, to follow him now. Have you said yes to that? Because today, I set before you a blessing and a curse. Jesus died on a cross to be the curse for us so we could be the blessing. To be the blessing, not just receive it. When God spoke to Abraham, he said, and I will make you a blessing. To me, that's even way cooler than just getting a blessing. So as we pray, you have a choice to make. Christians, you have a choice to make. Am I going to follow? But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus or you're not sure, you can walk out of here. And here's the weirdest thing. The moment you say yes in your heart and agree with me in prayer, watch what happens to you. Prove me wrong. He's going to wipe you so clean, wash you so clean, and fill you with a joy you've never known. And I speak from experience. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this precious fellowship. I thank you for the honor of being able to turn to you and know you've got this beautiful thing to say to our hearts. I thank you for this gorgeous chapter, Lord, and how you've really shown yourself. And history just is pregnant, full of these examples of where you've shown yourself strong. And I pray today, Lord, first for any person in here who is struggling because they really know that there's a world out there tugging at them, but it's just not satisfied them. There are people out there that really, the last thing that they would want is for us to really say with wholeheartedness, Jesus, come and possess me as you desire. But we can't deny the fact your Holy Spirit by love is drawing us into this relationship. You're like, please don't say no to my love. And today in this room, if you want to walk out of here confident you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it, if you agree 
I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And that's not some ritual. The point's simple. By saying amen, what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer. Let those words be my words now. So be that in my life. So you realize what you're doing is you're making the choice today to say yes. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, we all are. I know that. I'm not perfect. And I know that you punish all wrongdoing, but you, in your infinite love for me, sent your son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross so that my sin could be properly punished. Since he had no sin to pay for himself, he chose to pay for mine. And at the cross, when he bled and died, all my guilt, all my shame, all covered, all paid in full. Oh, how I want to believe that. That I could be innocent, pure in your sight right now. And you proved that to be true by raising him from the dead. That just like scripture promised as he rose from the dead, he offers me a new life where my mistakes of my past, my failures, are no longer attached to me. They're washed away. But to do that, my new life is lived under the leadership of Jesus as my Lord. And as scary as that might seem, and right now, as little as I know of that, if you're really willing to pay for him, if you're really willing to pay that price, then clearly you love me, and your plans are only for my future and my hope. So you love me more than even I do. You want me more than I do. And certainly you cherish me. So I say yes. Jesus, be my payment. Be my ransom. Be my Lord. Be mine. Even as I am yours now. I accept your gift and choose to follow you. In your name I pray. And if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And right now, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to just do something dangerous. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm keeping heads down so you can just do this. I just want the privilege of praying for you. If you've prayed that prayer today, right where you're at, just either slip up your hand really gently or just get eye contact with me saying, I prayed that prayer. I see you, sister. I see you. Anyone else today said, I prayed that prayer today. I see you. Anyone else today? I see you. Well, Lord, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters who have said yes today, that you cement in their heart, Lord, strengthen them in this conviction that they would follow you. For those, Lord, who the jury may still be out, Lord, I pray that you would show them that there's no other real choice to make. And I pray now for every person that makes claim to you, be it the brand new believers here in this room, or for that matter, those who have made claim to you quite a bit of time ago in their lives. I pray, Lord, that we would make that choice to follow you with everything, with our heart and soul, and to listen to your word, to be in your word, and to follow you as you lead us. And we just want to tell you thank you for being here. Thank you for transforming us. And thank you for not leaving us alone. We confess you, God, as one who's not afraid to knock heads. God, one who is strong and massive and infinitely almighty and who still loves to be part of our lives, who loves to intervene. So Lord, our lives are yours. Make us something beautiful, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.